Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 7 through 13. Uh, You can find it on page 977 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. If you happen to be here and you don't own a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. And so over on the welcome table right over to my right, we have some Bibles. They're called the Story ESV Bible. Those are yours. You can pick that up now. You can pick that up on your way out. We love God's Word. We think it's important for us to know and to read God's Word, so we want you to have that. Uh, So please take advantage of that. If you were here last Sunday, you know that this is the second time we've looked at this text. We looked at Ephesians 3, 7 through 13 last week. And that's because we value God's word. We love God's word. We think that God's word is important and has a lot to say to us. That God has inspired the text of scripture to us so that we might know him. And in knowing him, we might love him. And in loving him, we might live as he has called us to live in fellowship with himself. God's word has a lot to say to us, which is why when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we work through books of the Bible and we just go little by little, bit by bit, just trying to unpack and see what the Bible has to say to us so we might live for Christ and not for ourselves. And and so last week, we just couldn't go deep enough into Ephesians 3, 7 through 13, which is why we're looking at it again today. But This time, we're focusing, we're narrowing in and really examining verses 9 through 11. Last week, I posed a question. I asked you, how do you know that the gospel is true? How do you know that it's real? How do you know that God's plan, God's purpose in sending forth his son, Jesus Christ, to live, take on flesh, to live a life of perfect obedience, to die on the cross, to rise again from the grave. How do we know that that has the power to change lives, to affect change, to transform us from darkness to light, from being dead to alive in him? How do we know we have evidence or or that this is real, that that Christianity is true. And, And we talked about last time that God has revealed himself to us. He's given us his word so that we might understand how we are to live before him. He has revealed himself in our hearts and changing us and helping us to know that this really is the word of God. But in his grace, God has also given us tangible, visible, present demonstrations that the gospel is powerful, that the gospel is real, that the gospel is true, that the gospel is effective. And last time, we said that one of those, those proofs, one of those tangible evidences that God gives to us from this passage is that God transforms the lives of his people. When we are changed by the gospel, or when we are around people who are changed by the gospel, we see that it's true. We see that it's real. We see that it has the power to change. We were once undeserving sinners seeking to live our lives apart from Christ, to go our own way, to do our own thing, to live our lives without God. God has changed us to want to follow him, to worship Christ, to be ministers of the gospel. And as we go worshiping the glory of Christ, we're so changed, these undeserving recipients of God's grace, that we're actually willing to endure suffering for the glory of his name and for the good of others. As we are changed by the gospel, around others who are being transformed by the gospel, we see that it's true. We see that it's real. We see that it's effective. But the transformed lives of God's people is just one way the gospel is made known according to Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. But guess what? It's not the only way. In fact, it's not even the most primary, most essential way in this text. Paul's answer to that question, how do we know that the gospel is real, might actually surprise you. It might actually grate against your sort of innate sense of autonomy and individualistic tendencies. Well, I'm an introvert. You know, I just don't like people all that much. It might challenge your idea of what it means to be a Christian. It might go completely contrary to your past experience. How do we know that the gospel is real? Well, Paul tells us this morning that the mystery of the gospel is made known through the church. His answer to that question, 
How do we know? What, what proof do we have that the gospel is working is that the mystery of the gospel is made known through the church. That's the main idea. That's the central certainty that Paul gives us. That God's wisdom, his grace, his power, his purposes are displayed in the church. Or to say it another way, the church's very existence proves that God's plan of salvation worked. So Paul says, do you want to know for sure that God's plan of salvation as it's presented in Scripture is real and effective? Look, not just at how the gospel has changed lives like mine. He says, look to the church. Look at the church. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So read with me. Ephesians 3, 7 through 13. It says, of this gospel, I was made... uh, of this, go- I'm sorry. of this gospel, I was made minister through the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now this morning, again, we are going to zoom in on verses 9 through 11. And there we see that the mystery of the gospel is made known through the church. So if you're taking notes this morning, I only have two points. It's real easy, okay? First of all, I'm just breaking this proposition down into two points, right? First of all, we've got the the plan, right? The mystery of the gospel. What is this mystery of the gospel? And second, we've got the proof that God has made it known through the church. So that's where we're heading. So let's first of all look at this plan. Um, What is the plan of the mystery of the gospel? Now, have you ever wondered what is the purpose of history? Where is life heading? Where is it going? Why have things happened the way that they've happened? Not just on an individual scale like in my life, but like on a global scale. Why do kingdoms rise and fall? What's the point of all of this? What's the point of life? What's the point of history? How do I know that there's any hope for the future? Well, if that's you, I want you to pay very close attention to what Paul says here in this passage that's not you, I still want you to pay very close attention to what Paul says here in this passage. He, like so many who have gone before him alongside those holy apostles and prophets, as well as so many who have continued this message that he had received by revelation from the resurrected Lord Jesus, Paul understood that he had been commissioned by God, according to verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then he says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there's some big concepts here that we need to get. Some big ideas that we really need to unpack. Paul's goal as a messenger was so that everyone would hear the good news of Jesus Christ and it would enlighten the eyes of their hearts. This is a message that he is proclaiming that would change lives, it would transform them. It would be different. This message that he is communicating, according to verse 9, is a plan, right? A plan of the mystery. A mystery that has been hidden for ages. It has been hidden by God, the God who created all things. And this plan was according to God's eternal purpose that he is now revealed in Christ Jesus. So let's unpack that for a minute. First of all, Paul is preaching a plan. It's a plan. Not an idea, not some kind of wishful thinking. He's not preaching something that's happening at random or by accident. It's a plan. And it's not Paul's plan because it was given by the grace of God, according to chapter 3, verse 2. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, according to chapter 3, verse 5. So this is not Paul's plan. This is God's plan. Paul is just the messenger of that plan. And if it's a plan, then it's not an accident. It's not happening at random. It's not just kind of 
floating out there and we're just kind of figuring it out as we go along. It's happening according to the intention, the purpose, and the design of God. It is a plan that is carried out in stages, in successive movements, according to the single design of the one master architect, who is God. So this is not happening at random or by accident. Paul is preaching God's intentional plan. Second, Paul says that this was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So now we see that this plan of God is unfolding throughout history. It has entered into time and space and is unfolding chronologically along with us. This plan of the mystery hidden for ages is being coordinated and ministered and unpacked by God of the universe within history. That this one true and living God who created all things, who created all that there is, who sustains everything and in his sovereignty governs everything through the course of history, all of this is unfolding according to his intentional, masterful unfolding of his plan. A plan that is being disclosed over the course of time. This plan was once hidden. It was once a mystery. Now we learned a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 that a mystery is that which was formerly hidden by God but has now been revealed. Okay, unlike our modern notion of mystery that we read about in novels or we watch on movies or television or we attempt to solve during dinner theaters, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay, a biblical mystery is totally hidden from us. That there is no solving it. You can have the greatest crime lab in the world or the most deductive mind and you ain't going to figure out who done it until the God of the universe who created and sustains all things, who works out his plan according to time, throughout the course of time, decides to make it known in the way that he decides to make it known. According to verse 5, this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What that doesn't mean is that they were just completely lost and had no idea that God hadn't revealed anything. No, he's revealing it progressively through the course of time until it leads up to this particular time, this point in history in which he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets that we might know that Jesus is Lord. And they are proclaiming that message. It happens then, it happens now, right? God has set that in motion through the course of history. He kept it hidden until the time in which he decided to reveal that mystery. And just to make absolutely sure that we understand that God is not making this up as he goes along. This is not plan B, C, D, E, you know, you name the alphabet, you add numbers to it or whatever, right? He wants us to understand, according to verse 11, that this was according to God's eternal purpose. That God has set this one plan in motion from before the foundation of the world. A plan that has eternal and everlasting consequence. Consequence for the universe. Consequence for all of history. Consequence for all people. Consequence for you and for me. Every aspect of God's plan, which includes all things, everything that he created, will happen according to the pleasure and counsel of God's sovereign will. It was according to his infallible and eternal purpose. Guys, we make plans, we have purposes in mind, but we are not God. Okay, so when we think about plans, we're not talking about good ideas, like God had a good idea. When we're thinking about God's purposes, we're not thinking about, okay, this is the goal that he's just kind of up there in heaven, cringing his hands, hoping that it works out the way that he wants it to work out. This is the sovereign God of the universe, the God that spoke everything into creation, the God who rules over all. He ruleth all things well, as we just sang about. This is the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe, and so if he plans something, if he purposes it to happen, guess what? It's going to happen according to plan. And so we're learning a lot about God's plan in just these two little verses, just by unpacking some things and thinking about them, but he's not done here. This eternal plan of God for all of history, 
that he has now revealed through the holy apostles and prophets has been realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's been realized. Now, that doesn't mean that God's coming to understand it like the way that we often use realize. Like, oh, I realized that. Suddenly, I I figured it out. It's not like God's up there in heaven just like thinking, okay, got this eternal plan for the universe. Do you guys do this when you're thinking? I I don't know if I do, but I'm doing it now. I've got this eternal plan for the universe that I'm going to hide and then I'm going to reveal at this point in time. But for what purpose? What purpose? What purpose? Oh, Jesus. It's Jesus. I figured it out. That's not what God's doing. To realize in this sense is to accomplish, to bring to completion that this is God's eternal plan for all of history that he has now revealed. God has now accomplished in Christ Jesus, meaning that it is done. It is completed. He has carried it out in Christ Jesus. And who is this plan for? Who is it effective toward? It is for those who call Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I hope you see from what we've covered so far that history is clearly heading somewhere. There is a purpose. There is a plan. There is a future. We're moving towards that end. It is being progressively revealed. And at the center of this purpose is Christ, that he is the culmination, he is the fulfillment, he is the accomplishment of this eternal purpose, this plan for all of history. He is at the center of it all, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the God of the universe has placed Christ at the very center of history. And if you read Colossians 1 or other places, you know that all things were created by the Son of God and for the Son of God. And so if you add that to the mix, you realize not only is there a plan, this glorious eternal purpose that is unfolding, not only is history heading somewhere, but Jesus is the culmination of it all in the sense that he is the beginning, he is the center, and he is the conclusion of all of history. Now the question you have to ask at this point is why? I mean, God created all things. God created history. God can end history anytime he wants to. So it seems like God is the center of history. So why why Jesus? Why is Jesus Christ the center of history? See what I'm getting at here? I mean, did the holy creator God place Jesus at the center of history just so that we would have that nifty B.C., A.D. break in our timeline? You know, it's like, it's just so boring to count from like year zero to infinity. So I know what I'll do. I'll make history difficult for them. Yeah, yeah, I'll just break it and then I'll throw some Latin in there, right, and make them count backwards part of the time. That sounds awesome. Well, no, Jesus is more than a break in the timeline. Right? God's plan and God's purpose has been accomplished in Christ is bigger than that. And so why did God place Jesus at the center of history? Well, we're given a clue in verse 9, but to fully understand it, we have to back out. We have to zoom out a little bit in Ephesians, okay? So the clue that we're given in verse 9 is found in Paul's mission, that he is called to be a minister of the good news of Jesus Christ to bring to light for everyone God's plan. He's been commissioned by God to tell everyone he could about God's plan, and through the preaching of the gospel, people will be brought to light. And if they're brought to light, that means that they were not always in light, that they were once in darkness. Now, light is far more than having intellectual knowledge of God's plan and purposes, and darkness is far more than ignorance of that plan and purpose. Paul is speaking of the condition of souls here. Paul is saying to us that prior to God, by his grace, bringing us to a saving knowledge, a saving understanding of Christ, we were in darkness. But God's people, as they proclaim this eternal plan of God, those who are in darkness will hear it and they will be brought to light. God will enlighten the eyes of their hearts. They will be changed. They will have new life in Christ as a result of this message that Paul is proclaiming. Now, if this idea of of, uh, opposing conditions of darkness and light are just a little too abstract... Paul has already given us a really great definition and description of what this looks like in chapter 2. So I want you to look up there. Okay, flip the page if you need to. Look at chapter 2. 
What's this prior spiritual condition of darkness of all mankind that Paul is speaking of? Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says there, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Does that help paint the picture for us a little bit better? That the reason why Jesus actually became the center of history is not just because of who Jesus is. I mean, that would be enough, but it's also that because we have sinned against God, that we have sought to live our lives without him. And all mankind has sinned against God, and because they have sinned against God, their condition has changed. They have now been cut off and separated from God who is light. So they exist in a state of darkness, born into it, living it, loving it. They are dead in their sin. They follow the course of the world. They follow the devil. They are sons of disobedience. They live as slaves to their passions and their desires. And as sinners, like all mankind, they are subject to the wrath of God. They are children of God's wrath. Not that they're angry little kids. All have been condemned against their, by their sin against God. And this is why Jesus is the center of history. Because all people need to be rescued from this condition of darkness. And this is why all of those whom God has saved are called to preach God's plan to bring others to light. And so what's this condition of light that Paul is speaking of? Well, let's keep reading in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast." So though we were in darkness, we were dead in our sin, we were living as rebels to God, the God who created us, the God who sustains us, the God who gave us the very breath that we use to turn and curse his name, that God saves us apart from anything that we do, that we are deserving of judgment. God sent forth his son as a plan for the fullness of time to live a perfect life of obedience to God's law, never sinning against God. And he gave up that life by dying on a cross to pay the penalty that sin deserved. Rising again from the grave so that all of those whom, whose eyes have been enlightened, whose hearts have been changed, who have been made alive together with Christ might repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. They might be given new life in him. They might be changed. They might go from darkness to light, from death to life, from blindness to sight. And for all eternity, they will experience the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. Whereas Paul says even earlier in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, if you want to flip over there real quick. It says, in Jesus Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Wait, this sounds familiar. According to his purpose, again, familiar, which he set forth in Christ. Wait, I've heard this before. As a plan for the fullness of time. To what end? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, do you not see God's plan for history? This plan that is centered on Christ. This plan that is ultimately revealed in Christ This plan that was accomplished in Christ. This plan that has its presence effects in Christ. This plan that will reach its fulfillment in Christ. This once hidden mystery of Christ has now been revealed. And now we know where history is headed. Now we know how to get there. And now we know who we're going to be with. This is God's eternal plan for history. It is a history that is centered on Christ. 
History is his story. But it's a story that you and I are part of. Either through salvation, through faith in Christ, or eternal condemnation because we continue to live in the same manner that we were born to live apart from Christ. This plan for the fullness of time is unfolding right before our eyes. It's happening here and it's happening now. It's not some idea that's out there. It's right here in front of us. God has told us the end from the beginning and he has sent forth his son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for sin so that we, through faith in him, might have a glorious future. But for that to be ours, we have to turn away from ourselves and turn towards Christ. There has to be a change. We need to stop striving to live to build our own little earthly kingdoms and receive and rest in God's kingdom. We need to stop living as I am Lord of my life and submit ourselves to the true and rightful Lord over all, Jesus Christ. Do you realize that some of our biggest difficulties in life arise when we try to place ourselves at the center of history rather than realizing that we have just a small part to play in it? Well, I didn't live back then, and I, you know, I might not live till then, so basically I've got from life to death, boom, this is short, I'm in the center of it, there I am. When in reality, if we just remember the story, if we realize, you know what? Life is a vapor. And I have a, an eternal promise that I don't deserve because I'm nothing. We lose heart when we make ourselves bigger than Christ or when we treat God's eternal plan as a means to our own fleeting ends. I'll use Jesus just enough to get what I want rather than submitting to him as Lord. But the gospel is bigger than your life. The gospel is bigger than your situation. The gospel is bigger than every difficult circumstance that you will ever encounter. And not only is it bigger, but the gospel reminds us that life is fleeting, that our circumstances are temporary, and they are preparing for us what Paul says later is an eternal weight of glory. There is a great and precious promise attached to the end of it. If we just would remain in faith. And so... Whether in prison or in pain, we do not lose heart because we have an eternal, imperishable, and unfading hope. Guys, the gospel is not about you, it's about Him. You've got to get this. Praise God that it has its effect in me, but it's not about me, it's about Him. Jesus is the center of all of history. Not nations, not races, not cultures, not peoples, not you, and not me. All of them will rise and fall. But the gospel, the gospel goes on. Christ's kingdom is everlasting. And if Jesus is the center of all of history, that means That he is meant to be at the center of your history. Not an addendum, not an aside, not out on the periphery of your life somewhere or out there in the abstract ether, right here at the center of my soul. And so the question for you is really, how is God calling you to have your history tell his story? God's plan of the mystery of the gospel is to place Christ at the center of all of history. But how do we know that this is true? Second, let's look at the proof that God has made it known through the church. 
Last week we saw how the power of the gospel is displayed in the transformed lives of God's people. As God's plan of salvation is implanted into the souls of men, their lives are radically transformed. They're progressively changed to become more and more like Jesus. God effectively works in the hearts of these undeserving sinners to make them ministers of the gospel. And as they are fueled in worship by the glories of Christ, they go out and they're willing to endure whatever God would give them for the sake of exalting the name of Christ in all things and seeking the good of their brothers and sisters in Christ. But even there, we see that life transformation doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not that the power of the gospel is displayed in the individual lives of people in isolation. It is not a private power. It is a power that is displayed as glorious in community. How is the wisdom and the power and the grace of God's eternal plan of salvation and Christ displayed for all to see? Paul says the church. It's in the church. You know, we've already seen this in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, Paul prayed that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of of our hearts enlightened so that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and put him above every rule and every power and every authority, both earthly and spiritual, for all time. Placed him there. And then he says in chapter 1, verse 22, And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head, as ruler over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that's kind of a cryptic message, but when we talked about it, we see that the church is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. This is talking about sovereignty and rulership according to the context. And so the church, this gathered body of Christ, submitted to the rule and reign of Jesus as Savior and Lord, gives a visible demonstration to the watching world of the supremacy of Christ in all things. They show the fullness of Christ who rules over all. Chapter 2. Our lives display that religious zeal and self-righteous works cannot save us. That we must be saved by God's grace. And God doesn't just save a bunch of autonomous individuals because we saw in chapter 2 verse 10 that Paul gives this explanation here. It's really key for we, plural, are God's single workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we together should walk in them. You see, it's corporate. The power of God for salvation not only reconciles us to God, but to one another. We saw in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, that the gospel not only removes the enmity between us and God, restoring peace that was, not, that was back there with Adam and Eve and in the garden before they fell, but also that through the gospel, those who were once separated, alienated, living as strangers in hostility and hatred and enmity towards one another have been brought near. They've been made one. They've been joined together into a new humanity, the church. God has broken down the walls of hostility that would divide us and is building us together into this dwelling place for himself. We are joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. This mystery that was once hidden but now revealed in Christ according to chapter 3 verse 6 is that now Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Those who were once just complete opposite, total enemies and hostility to one another, God has brought together. And so Paul has already given us lots of examples of how the church proves that God's plan of salvation worked. But what he says here in chapter 3, verse 10, is perhaps the most profound. The purpose of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ and seeking to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things is so that 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, through God's people gathered together both universally as people from every tongue, every tribe, every language gathered around God's heavenly throne in worship. That is the universal church and both locally in these visible, accessible, visible manifestations of that universal church as they covenant together in this community-based congregation just like this one. Both are in view here. The manifold wisdom of God is undeniably displayed to the cosmos. The gathered church, united in Christ, proves that God's plan of salvation worked. Man, what a privilege. This is just mind-blowing to think about this. I mean, the God of the universe who created all things that he would choose to display his unparalleled wisdom in saving wretched sinners and uniting them together as an intricate and yet beautiful tapestry of his lavish saving power to the dumbfounded awe of the heavenly beings. I mean, think about that. This is God's manifold wisdom, this many-sided, multicolored wisdom. It is stunning and it is complex. Just as with a multifaceted diamond, each cut captures and reflects brilliant, shining light. Or how in a breathtaking field of wildflowers, each delicate petal adds to the intricacy and detail of that beautiful landscape. Or how each tiny stroke of the paintbrush all comes together and to show this masterpiece of this great great painter individually each of them don't matter but together it is beautiful it is intricate and as God brings us together redeemed sinners from various races and backgrounds and tribes and nations and pay grades and education and all of that ages together in covenant love united in Christ breaking down those sinful barriers of social stigma that we would erect to separate ourselves from one another the hostility all broken down then the creative genius and the lavish grace grace of God is unfolded before our eyes and we stand in awe and we say this is beautiful this is amazing I can't believe what God has done in the church do you see what's happening here this is no light thing that we the church serve to, to create awe and wonder for the cosmos Through the church, we behold the manifold wisdom of God, which is glorious, undeniable proof of God's wisdom and his power and his grace. Through the church, the diversified nature of God's wisdom is now made known, unlike ever before, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, empiricism has ruined us. Right, We are slaves to our senses. We are slaves to this idea that we can discern all things and measure all things. Our culture and our experiences mislead us into thinking that the only things that are real are things that we can see. They're things that we can smell and hear and taste and touch. And we are so conditioned by this that we actually operate as naturalistic materialists. But you know, if we look hard enough... Even our thoughts and our experiences betray us. When the fact that we can think, the fact that we can remember, betrays us. The fact that we experience emotions, the fact that we know that we're more than biological machines, the fact that we know that there are souls, there's something more, something immaterial in a person that makes a person, and when that's gone, they're dead. The material doesn't live on. We know this to be true. And so God and religion, it's just not this superstitious feelings of those who are just kind of like weak and need some explanation for one is inexplicable. The God, the God who revealed himself has put that into our hearts. We know this to be true. God who created all things, who himself is a spirit, does not have a body like a man, 
right? This God revealed that he not only created all that we see, but he created all that we do not see. God not only created everything that we see, but he created these heavenly beings, this being, these beings who he has given great authority. God's wisdom is displayed through the church to these heavenly beings. The Bible calls them angels. Okay, now when you think of angels, you've got to get some things out of your mind. We're not talking about those fat-winged, diapered, baby, chubby-looking things that you see in the Hallmark bookstore. But I don't know where they got that idea. That's not what they're like. If you read about angels in Scripture, they freaked you out. You would literally wet yourself if you saw an angel. I mean, John was falling down trying to worship this thing every time he saw it. Angel's like, get up, get up. I am not God, right? So you've got to keep that in mind. These, these, these are spiritual beings that had great power. Some of these angels rebelled. They rebelled against God. And for thousands of years, they have been seeking to oppose God's plan of salvation that we've already talked about. God's plan for history. They've been trying to defeat that in futility. Now, I think that both good and fallen angels are in view here. And here's why. Good angels never rebelled against God. They've never rejected God's authority. And so they have no true understanding of concepts like God's grace, God's mercy, God's justice and holiness, and what reconciliation and redemption are all about. They could not sing Amazing Grace. They'd be like, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that save wretches like you. Right? Instead, it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that they look upon the church and they behold the wisdom and the grace of God and salvation and they long to look upon it because they are learning more and more and more about this great God who they serve. But primarily, Paul is referring to fallen angels, those evil cosmic powers whom we wrestle against according to chapter 6 verse 12. We fight against them. We struggle. We're in a spiritual war right here and right now. And those are our enemies. But he's already told us back in chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, that Christ is now ruling over every ruler and every authority in the heavenly places. That Christ has already gained victory, and yet his victory will finally be realized, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 10, when all things, things in heaven and things on earth, are reconciled to him at his glorious return. And so between Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God, that we've already read about, and his return to unite all things in him, we, the church, wrestle against these powers, But here's the amazing thing that in our unity, in our gathering together, our committing ourselves to reflect God's covenantal love with our relationship with each other as we reflect our love for Christ, it is a visible demonstration to these hostile powers that their time is up, that they have lost, and that they will soon be judged. God's plan of salvation has worked. And the very thing that they thought was the culmination, the perfect plan to destroy God's plan of salvation in the death of Christ, God has turned it on its head and used their most detailed opposition to be the means in which he has restored us to himself. The glorious salvation is delivered in the very opposition, that they, they're the, the culmination of their attack against God. Do you get that? The wisdom of God is displayed in that he took that, that big plan. We're going to kill Christ. This is a great idea. We're going to win. And he says, no. Boom. Let me show you. And just so you have a reminder, here's the church. Take a look. Friends, there's something cosmic that happens when we gather together to exalt the name of Christ. There is something universal that is taking place when we covenant ourselves together in a local church. And it is awe-inspiring to the heavenly beings. 
This was according to the eternal purpose that God has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was God's idea. God's wisdom being put on display. Now before we can move away from this, we need to ask the question, why the church? Have you ever thought about that? Why the church? Let's think about what we've talked about so far, okay? We've established that Jesus is the very center of all of history. That God's plan from before the foundation of the world that will end in eternity is established and centered on Christ. We learn from passages like Colossians chapter 2 that it was Christ's burial and his resurrection that guarantees that all of these principalities and powers will be triumphed over. That was Christ's work that accomplished that. Right? We know, according to chapter 1, that Christ is right now seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know how big the heavenly places are, but my thought is, okay, if Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God in the heavenly places, and these rulers and authorities are in the heavenly places, you think that they would know. Right? Maybe they need to send a telegram. I don't know. But you think that they would know. Okay, we're in the heavenly places. There's Jesus exalted. What's this got to do with the church? Right? Jesus accomplished it. Jesus is the center of history. Jesus is reigning right now in the heavenly places. What's this got to do with the church? Why not the exalted Christ? It's already done. I mean, what he's doing here, what Paul is doing here is basically giving Christ's seat to the church. And that's his point. That's his point. He's giving Christ's seat to the church. That's the privilege that we've been given. That the body of Christ is so connected to each other and to its head that when he was made alive, we were made together alive with him. That when Christ rose from the dead, we rose with him. And when Christ was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, so were we. When Christ is made the center of history, so is the church. When Christ from before the foundation of the world established this pattern, we too were elected from before the foundation of the world. We were established, the church established in God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And as this power of God that did all of this, that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him above every other name that is named for all time, that power is at work in us who believe. It's given to us. And as Christ has reconciled us both to God in one body through the church, through the cross. He has made one new man in place of the two. And though for a short time we may wrestle against these cosmic powers that would seek to divide us, that would seek to discourage us, that would seek to lead us into sin, we know that one day, according to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3, we will judge the fallen angels. Until then, we fight for unity to prove them that, we, that it's already been won. It's done. God is so wise that he has turned their most elaborative attack as his means of of ultimate victory. And we, the church, get to display that. There is nothing on earth that has that ability or that privilege to display that. Only the church. And so do you want to know that the gospel is real? You can't look at isolated individuals. You can't look at those who huddle together in a cloister. You can't look at pockets of professing believers who look just like each other and act just like the world. You can't look at any organization that comes out of the church. Paul says, you want to know it's real? You want to know it's true? You want to know that the gospel is effective and working and will gain ultimate victory? Look at the church. Look at the church. You guys see why we talk so much about the church here at Redeemer? To the astonishment of all, 
God's wisdom is displayed with invisible, local manifestations of Christ's heavenly, universal body. The church is central to history. The church is central to the gospel. It is proclaimed by the church, and it is ultimately for the church. The church is central to Christian living. As we wrestle against these powers and we fight for unity to display the glory and the wisdom of God to the cosmos. The church is amazing. Now I'm guessing that some of you might might be feeling a little uncomfortable right now. When we look at this, this is huge. I have never thought about this before. God's eternal plan for salvation is meant to be displayed in your life as you live within a covenant community as God defines it according to his plan. Maybe you've always considered yourself to be a loner. I'm an introvert. I'm just kind of out there. The idea of, of gathering together with redeemed sinners is frightening. Well, I'd encourage you to consider that we were not meant to go through life alone. That we cannot withstand these attacks from these spiritual powers apart from life together. God has created us that way. And nor can we display God's wisdom in our worship, in our gathering together, apart from the church. If you are not a member of a church, or maybe you're an avoiding member of the church, you need to trust in God's good and wise plan for your life. I know it's risky. I know it's hard. Trust me. I think that three of us know better than anyone else in this room how messy Redeemer Church is. But it's worth it. God knows what he's doing. So follow in faith in Christ. Others of you might really like the idea of community. We like the idea of community. Community sounds great as long as I have the authority to define it, right? I get to pick my own terms, what, what I'm comfortable with, what I'm willing to do and not do, who I'm willing to be with and who I'm willing, not willing to be with. And as long as I can set the plan, then I'm okay with it. But guess what? The church is God's plan, not yours. It was according to his purpose that he has accomplished in Christ. You did not do it. And so recognize God's plan. We don't get to define the church or community by our comforts, by our personal preferences, by our willingness or unwillingness to commit, or any type of demographic information we might prefer. The church is, not, is defined by the word of God. It is only defined by the word of God. The parachurch is not the church, a group of friends gathered together who are just like me that occasionally talk about God. That is not the church. Mono-generational, mono-racial, mono-ethnic, mono-class, anything that's basically you hold up a picture of one person and everybody looks just like that, that misses the point of the power of the gospel to unify people from all walks of life and bring them together. You want to know what the church should look like? Read Revelation 21 and strive for that. The power of the gospel is displayed when people from every walk of life having nothing in common but Christ, but they love one another as an expression of their love and their commitment to Christ. That displays the gospel. That shows the wisdom, the power, and the glory of God. Our community must be defined by God's call. It is the intended result to reflect God's heavenly church. I also know that in saying this, that some, maybe, maybe even many of us, have not really experienced what God has intended in this passage. Yeah, I read it on paper, but what does that look like? My past was nothing like that. Some of you bear the scars of church wars, and you have been deeply wounded. Our past experiences run completely contrary to what we read about in this passage. Well, God's call is not for us to check out, to grow bitter, to live in fear, 
but to repentantly, to faithfully find a healthy church and live within that church and strive, strive by the grace of God to pursue unity, to see this passage become more and more and more a reality in your life and in your church. Some of you may be here and you're, you're feeling deeply burdened by the weight of your sin. You feel completely unworthy of the church. Man, I, I can't go to the church. Do you have any idea what I've done? Do you have any idea who I am? I can't be around those people. They're not like me. Here's a little bit of a reality check. People in the church, they don't have it together either. Right? I'm living proof of that. The church is simply a gathering of unworthy yet redeemed sinners that are striving towards holiness together. Your sin is not beyond the grace of God. And if it's not beyond the grace of God, then your sin is certainly not too big for those who have been saved by the grace of God. And so seek the church. And at the core of this passage is a call. It's a call to not lose heart in the fight of faith, but to realize who we truly are together and to fight for that unity, to not go it alone. To, it's, it's a call not to be burdened down and to run away from hardships and difficulties and sin and division, but to pursue peace together, to be who we are, one new humanity in Christ Jesus expressed locally in the church. Now, I know I've been going for quite a while here. But if you want to give me just another minute or two, all right, I, I just need to say that I love you, Redeemer Church. I love you guys. I love to see the ways that this passage is becoming more and more and more a reality in our church. Because I love it when children in this church get excited about community group or they get excited about coming to our worship gathering on Sunday mornings, not because they can't wait to be with their friends. And when they're talking about their friends, they're not talking about other kids. They're talking about you adults. I mean, my, my son Gabe, he, he, sometimes he, we have a Kindle fire and he saves his free time so that he can play with Eric when he comes over for community group. I love seeing the way adults get excited and faithfully serve our kids. I love it when I hear stories of you sharing your faith with other people, pursuing people who are not like you, living, loving with them, weeping with them, rejoicing with them. I love it that some of you are serving as conversation partners or engaging with the international community around us as a means of gospel light into that situation. I love the way that you guys are coming around one another and serving one another practically, bringing meals to one another, helping one another move because you move all the time and you need to stop that. I love it when I see a 30-something married pregnant lady with kids stand up as a bridesmaid in a wedding of two girls that are a decade younger than her. And I love it that these two girls loved her and appreciated her so much that they wanted her to stand in their wedding. I love it when I see families bearing the burden of those who are down and out. Seeking by whatever means they can, just calling, talking, praying with, to make sure people have food and have shelter and having a safe place to rehabilitate. I love the ways that I've seen reconciliation and forgiveness and unity being displayed here within this church. God is using you, members of Redeemer Church, to display the manifold wisdom of God to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's doing it. It's working. It's effective. But let's not stop. Let's not be content to celebrate our past successes. Let's not say what I have right here and right now is better than anything that I've ever experienced before. And so I'm okay. I'm okay with this level of commitment. I'm okay with this a matter of service and, and no more. I'm okay with where we are right now. Let's continue to strive and pursue and push ahead together in Christ to actually display this and make this a reality more and more and more and more together. Let's walk in a manner worthy of that call. 
Let's seek to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our goal. And so we know God's plan. Let's be the proof. The mystery of the gospel is made known through the church. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, I was just in awe that you would, in your wisdom, in your grace, and your goodness, use feeble and insignificant people like us to display your glory. God, I admit, I, I question the wisdom of this choice, but I know that you are wiser than I am. And that you are far more gracious and good and powerful than I am. And so, Lord, I, I thank you that we have this privilege as the gathered body of Christ, united in him, that we get to display that the gospel is real. That your plan of salvation has worked. And Lord, I pray for our hearts, man, that we, we would be changed, that we would just stand in awe of this, and in loving Christ, we would love one another more, that this would become more and more a reality in our lives, not as we seek to pursue these things by our own effort, but as we seek to pursue Christ, just as Caleb talked about at the beginning of the service, we are changed, that those things that we want as periphery things become ours as we find Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that for us. I pray that we would let go of the things that we're holding on to, these little kingdoms that we're trying to build and receive and rest and follow hard after Christ's kingdom. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.